I'm uh, Gary Brown, a retired colonel from the United States Air Force. I served for 24 years. I was a judge advocate for my career in the Air Force, so I did spend a good bit of time in my career being an operations law attorney. But from 2008 to 2009, I was deployed to the Combined Air Operations Center in Southwest Asia, where we controlled combat air operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. And then uh, when I left that assignment, I reported to Fort Meade, where I helped stand up U.S. Cyber Command, and I was the first senior legal counsel there from 2009 until 2012, when I retired from the Air Force. Just after my retirement, I went to work for the International Committee of the Red Cross in their Washington delegation, where I worked on conduct of hostilities, legal issues, among other things. There are significant legal issues, both with domestic and the international law in the area of drone operations and with cyber warfare. Of course, much of the conversation in cyber warfare is centered around the law because it's just so unclear. With drones, the law is quite a lot clearer because whether a bomb comes off a vehicle without a pilot in it or a vehicle with a pilot in it doesn't really make a lot of difference legally. In 2008, 2009, and I think after the initial push into Afghanistan and Iraq both, after that initial phase, the biggest issues centered around how best to employ combat air power without causing civilian casualties. So most of our time was spent on observation of potential targets and trying to determine when we should best strike, what weapon we should use to strike, whether we should strike, uh, all in the service of avoiding civilian casualties, avoiding as much damage as we could to civilian property as well. One of the biggest problems is that I think in a moral and a political sense, it's become this gray area of operations between warfare and some other lesser level of hostilities. It's important enough for at least some countries to consider it warfare, but it doesn't seem to be important enough for it to be treated like warfare where civilian casualties would be justified in prosecuting the war. Generally speaking, the United States attempts to conduct air operations and cause zero civilian casualties. And this is really kind of an unrealistic goal, unfortunately. In some cases, it creates a backward set of incentives where civilians are encouraged to gather around potential military targets or might gather around them sometimes as voluntary human shields to uh, prevent strikes on relevant military targets. Or perhaps more relevant, people who know that they themselves are targets of potential airstrikes might put themselves in positions where they're near civilian populations as much as they can so that they'll either cause civilian casualties when they're struck or else they'll more likely just avoid being killed or lethally targeted. The law isn't zero civilian casualties. The law is proportionality and distinction. So it's unlawful to make the civilians the object of the attack. But when civilians are collateral, the law is what would be a reasonable number of civilian casualties to be expected given the value of the military target. So in this case, it's very interesting. The law is less restrictive than the perceptions, much less restrictive, really. Those laws were generally crafted by state practice and, and written up after World War II, where, of course, civilian casualties were taken as a given. And I think that same perception followed through in Korea and through Vietnam. But then in Vietnam, we started to see the public opinion change about uh, civilian casualties. And it just has become more and more restrictive until it's been squeezed to zero, really, in, in the public's mind. We'll see the headlines in the newspaper in the West when there's a single civilian casualty, or we saw many, many of the headlines about wedding parties or weddings were struck. And so the additional complication is 
first of all, intelligence is rarely perfect. It's often very good, but it's rarely perfect. And second, even with perfect intelligence, there can be reasonable differences or differences between reasonable people about whether or not someone should be a proper target. For example, someone could have been fighting for a rebel group yesterday and have genuinely had a change of heart and as of today has no intention to carry on. But how would an opponent know that if they'd been following him for weeks or months watching him engage in the fight? On the other hand, somebody can engage in the classic farmer by day, fighter by night paradigm where they're fighting every night and farming in the day. And of course, from the U.S. perspective, this would probably render that person a, a member of the opposition but not in everybody's mind. So those are things that are quite difficult, even with perfect intelligence, to sort out. The issue is public opinion. We can probably follow that farther when we think about whether it's good to have unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, employing weapons. Some people are uncomfortable with the idea that there's not a human being in the cockpit, or I think looking down the road, they're uncomfortable that in the future, some people can envision a time when there's no human in the loop anywhere in that targeting process. I think, despite some interesting commentary and opinions to the contrary, I personally don't think there's a legal prohibition on that. The problem we have is a moral problem in that we think that we should have a human, someone with a soul, basically, in a lethal targeting chain. Given the state of technology now and warfare now, I think it's a good idea. But sometime down the road, as we improve artificial intelligence, someone will have to make an interesting decision about whether it's more important to have someone with a soul in the targeting chain or have better decisions made. Because it's inevitable that machines will be able to make better decisions than humans make. Machines can be programmed. Artificial intelligence can learn to be merciful as well as uh, lethal. So I think all those things can be programmed in. And the flip side that people often don't talk about is although humans do have empathy and sympathy and have a heart, humans also carry other emotions with them that might include things like revenge or illness or just poor judgment on a given day. And so we see poor lethal decisions made too. It's not always that humans err on the side of mercy. Maybe we'll build a legal regime around that, but right now there's not international law, I don't think, that prohibits having purely autonomous targeting. There is some crossover between drones and cyber, but many of the issues in cyber are completely distinct and independent because it's such a new area of law. Really, before we can have a good discussion about the international law on cyber warfare, we have to talk a little bit about the way the international law system works with regard to armed conflict. So just very briefly, generally there's a body of law that deals with the conduct of hostilities, and there's a completely separate body of law that deals with interstate relations leading up to warfare. So this is the use in bellow and the use ad bellum. The use in bellow is also called international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict. I usually talk about this first because I think it's the easier one to talk about with cyber because I'm perhaps not reflecting the majority view here, but I thought about it a lot. So we're talking now about the law that applies once an armed conflict has been started. We're in the middle of a war. And now we're talking about military operations, those very things that control when we employ weapons from a drone. The cyber capabilities we would use in the context of an armed conflict would be governed by those exact same principles of the law of armed conflict. So distinction, we can't target civilians in attacks. Proportionality, if we attack, we have to ensure that collateral damage and casualties are outweighed by the importance of the military target, for example. The issue with cyber capabilities, offensive cyber capabilities in this case, is that 
they rarely rise to the level of what we would consider to be an attack. So most of the things that we would use at any time in cyber, but certainly in the context of armed conflict, mostly we've seen cyber used to do things like degrade the efficiency of an integrated air defense system. There were reports of that from Israel and Operation Orchard uh, several years ago. And although they weren't in the middle of a declared armed conflict, I think it's useful as an example anyway. It didn't necessarily destroy the air defense system. It just degraded it. And besides, when you're going to put a bomb next to it anyway, nobody really cares about what you did with cyber. When the Russians invaded South Ossetia, they used cyber operations to take down websites, to distribute a denial of service attacks on some government websites that serve civilians. But it didn't destroy the websites. It didn't injure anyone directly. Same thing in Estonia. Again, it wasn't in the context of an armed conflict, but those kinds of disruptive operations are the kinds of things we see, and they don't really rise to the level of killing people and breaking things, which is what we're looking for for the principles to have much application. There's a lot more I could say about that, but much more interesting is the USAID Bellum, so the law that governs the resort to war. This is an area that states are quite concerned about now because these are the kinds of operations that we would look to determine whether or not we're crossing the threshold into armed conflict. States can engage in relatively unfriendly actions toward each other without crossing this line into open armed conflict. So if the Americans find that the Chinese stole 20 million records from their security classification system, as they reported uh, some time ago in the press, that is an accepted state practice. It's considered espionage between states. We have rules for that. We don't have great rules for the emplacement of malware on critical national systems that hasn't yet been activated but could be activated to damage or destroy the system's capabilities. We're not quite sure how to treat that. Fortunately, there haven't been any reports of this yet, but I don't think we'd know how to treat it if we found adversary malware on our nuclear command and control system. These things are pretty dangerous. The problem would be it could be quite difficult to assess what the intent of the malware was or what the adversary's intent was in placing it there. Is it just espionage? Is it there for espionage purposes? Because many times you get access to a network, you can do that for espionage purposes, or you can then implant malware that can be destructive to the system. So it's difficult to tell intent just from seeing the penetration of your system. So I think all states are interested in setting some expectations, setting some norms, developing what some people call a grammar of escalation as well, because some of these things, what's the proper response if you find it? The U.S. has indicted some members of the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, for example, for engaging in espionage. I don't think there's really any expectation that they'll ever get these members of the Chinese army in court in the United States, but it was a public statement of displeasure. And that's the kind of grammar I think needs to be developed so that states don't accidentally slip into armed conflict over these cyber activities that can be ambiguous. There are a couple things that complicate any system that would assign responsibility for offensive cyber activities. Generally, it's referred to as the attribution problem. We talk about this a lot in the area of cyber law. So we're looking to attribute activities to people. First of all, it's quite difficult technically to attribute cyber activities anyway because no one just sits at their own computer at their own desk and engages directly in hacking onto somebody else's computer. All the professionals use hot points and obfuscation techniques so that it's difficult to tell what the origin of the activity was. But there are some ways to drill back through the system to find out the origin of the activity. Even if we find the origin, it might be to a network, it might be to a computer, 
Maybe we know the individual. In some cases, some very good technical experts have worked their way back through the system and taken pictures using the webcam of the hacker's computer, so taken pictures of their face. There's some of these photos in the indictment of the PLA officer, so you can see who was sitting at the computer <laughs> when this activity happened. Now, that could give you an individual. That doesn't necessarily give you the sponsor behind the individual because, and again, in, in that case, just because someone is in the PLA doesn't mean they were doing it at the behest of the Chinese government. I have no position on that personally, but just because it's a U.S. or a British military person doesn't mean they're doing what they're supposed to be doing for their job every moment of the day. So we have that problem. The other problem is there is no formal evidentiary standard for these types of international activities. The standard is every state should act as a reasonable state would act, given the facts and circumstances. So if a state responds back with economic sanctions or with the expulsion of diplomats, all those things are within understood limits of the diplomatic system, and that kind of retorsion is lawful and expected. But if a state responded back with, let's say, a kinetic strike against a state for a cyber activity, well, the question would be, did the original state cross the threshold of an armed attack on them. And then we'd have to sort through what constitutes an armed attack in cyber. Is the destruction of a computer or a network or the disruption of its capabilities for some period of time, is that equivalent of an armed attack? Is it just a use of force or is it even something less than that? So all those things would be looked at and the determination would be if a reasonable state would have acted the same. It's not a clear standard, but that's really what we expect from the international law that governs interstate relations. It's A lot of it's very vague, and it's just based on past practice. There are a lot of bilateral conversations going on between states because many, many experts are talking and writing about the issue. But international law is made by states, not by individuals. And if states don't agree with what the experts are saying, it's not worth the paper it's printed on. Now, many states, for example, with the Tallinn Manual on the law governing cyber warfare, many states have agreed with the vast majority of the content, and some of them, I think, are even adopting it as their law. But many states don't agree with all of it, so it's important that the states sit down with each other and work out what parts they do agree. There are also a lot of projects going on trying to have individuals from different states talk about norms, international norms, so that we can get some informal rules of the road so that from there maybe we can build custom and practice going forward. This whole thing is complicated by the fact that states don't like to talk about what they do in cyberspace. No one likes to admit what they did, even states that normally lead the way with the establishment of international law. So it makes it very challenging, very challenging to figure this out. There are a lot of what are called Track 1.5 diplomatic engagements. So this would be combinations of state officials and people from civil society that would talk across international lines. So I'm involved in one called the Roundtable on Military Cyber Stability. That's a conversation with Chinese and Russian people in and out of government. We met in China last year. We've met in Boston. I think we're, we're meeting in Washington this summer to try to talk through some ideas of how the military looks at cyber operations to avoid misunderstanding on the military side. And there are many other of these types of relatively informal dialogues, the idea being that we'll build reports We'll maybe come to some understanding. There will be some papers that are published out of that, and then hopefully that'll percolate up to the official negotiations. And at some point, that will help give them some research to rely on and some ideas to think about when they get together with their official counterparts in those countries. It's a very long process making international law, and I think all of us have at least a little bit of anxiety over how fast cyber operations move and how slowly international law develops. There's a disconnect here, and I'm not at all convinced that the system we have now is really up to the task, but 
I do hope that just the goodwill of the people involved will make it work, even though it doesn't look like a great fit. If people are determined to make it work, we can make it work. The Talon Manuals has provided 98% of the work that would need to be done on a new protocol going forward or a new treaty, and states can discard the parts they don't agree with, but go forward with that. It's well supported by research. It addresses lots of different opinions and, and options for applying the law. So I think it's very valuable in serving as the basis to go forward. It just isn't itself law. We have been talking about the current situation, but there are a lot of developments that could happen in the quite near future that could make things significantly more complicated. We talked a little bit about fully autonomous weapons. I think in some ways we already are at the point of giant robots that are armed, and I offer that a bit tongue-in-cheek, but if we think of a robot as something that can engage an individual thought and has the ability to put it into effect in the physical world, we have that with the Internet of Things. We've connected all our devices to the Internet. Well, the Internet is almost a thinking thing, and it certainly has the ability with crowdsourcing and many people giving inputs into it to do things that look a lot like independent thought. Now it controls hundreds of millions of devices in the physical world, so really the Internet of Things is a giant robot and could quite easily be weaponized since those things that are connected to the Internet include most of our utility systems, our electric power grid, all our home devices, many people's refrigerators and thermostats in their home, and soon our autonomous, you know, our self-driving cars and vehicles will be there connected to that as well. So um, the giant killer robot, I hope it just turns into a giant benevolent robot. <laughs> <laughs>